Bills know it. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 199. Jason Lingren is with me. And we have a pretty special guest that I actually went and sought out. His name is Richard. Um, that will be the name only that we use. Uh, I'm hoping he will show up in comments under this episode. I'm almost certain there's going to be so many questions on the tail of this. We're going to be talking about ayahuasca. And the reason I sought Richard out is because I see so many people commenting about doing mushrooms and LSD and all these things. And I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I don't agree with getting high and acting like you're doing some spiritual elevation, which is why I wanted to go find someone who actually knows some things. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. Do we have anything for the intro here, or should we just get going with Richard? Let's get going with Richard. All right, Richard. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. Thank you. So you were on the West Coast. We're about three hours apart, but um, you kind of, we've kind of outlined um, why I sought you out and what I'd like to do here. So let me start by asking you, is it better for me to call what we're about to talk about ayahuasca or aya? Uh, I prefer ayahuasca. Okay, ayahuasca. So ayahuasca, can you first just quickly tell us what it is, where it's found, and just make per- people familiar with what we're about to talk about? And by the way, if I'm not mistaken, it is termed a natural hallucinogen, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'll start off at the beginning, which um, goes pretty far back. Nobody knows how long it goes back because the main reason is that in the jungle, nothing lasts. And there's very little in the way of pottery or stonework there. So people may have been doing this as little as a few thousand years or as much as 20 or 30,000 years. Nobody knows and will really never find out exactly because, you know, if you if you take a book to the jungle and you're in a jungle hut in about a month or two, the book turns black and starts being eaten by mold or termites or something else. So there's no real way to do good archaeology there. But whatever whatever it was, the stories that the shamans in the South tell is that people were drinking the vine first, which was Banisteriopsis copy. And that alone has some beautiful medicinal effects. It's anti-parasitical. It's an anti-parasite, anti-parasitical, parasitical, yes. It's a parasitical medicine, which is a big problem in the jungle, obviously. And it also tends to open one up to the spirit world, to the world within. Now, at some point, nobody knows how it happens. The shamans will say the medicine told us to do this. But somebody added chakruna, psychotropia viridis, viridis to the brew, and that turned the light on. People will now make the mistake of thinking it's just a MAO inhibitor and dimethyltryptamine, or NNDMT. And that's kind of a mistake because the original people who used it there didn't have these terminologies. They did not have the reductionist Western scientific mind that so many of us has is of let's find the active ingredient. Let's tear it apart and find exactly what's doing what, and then take everything else away and use those. They were interested in the whole plants and in the spirits of the whole plants. Because when you do these medicines, when you drink ayahuasca, it doesn't take too many ceremonies before something inside of you, kind of a little bell rings, and you say to yourself, this is an intelligent being. So over the years, the culture has adopted to it. Many of the cultures, their art and their language and their music kind of evolved out of the work of ayahuasca. There it's seeing as a healer. There it's seeing as a guide. There it's seeing even as a friend that one can take when one wants to heal something, either on a spiritual level, physical level, emotional level, psychological level, wherever it is that needs healing, the the ayahuasca will help you to accomplish what it is that you're seeking through the aid of the curanderos, the healers, the shamans that pour the medicine and sing the proper songs during the ceremonies. So let me make a quick clarification. As we got going, you were pointing out that ayahuasca use goes way back, which is a vine, but at some point, uh, human beings using the ayahuasca were informed when using the ayahuasca to add another plant. Is that correct? 
you know, that's it's pointed out in the cosmic serpent is that there's, I don't know, let's say there's half a million different species in the jungle. And to put any two together, cook it for several days, and then drink it would take trillions of years. I may be exaggerating by a few zeros there, I don't know, but at least billions of years. And so the idea of it happening randomly, you know, like, let's just put these two plants together and see what happens here, is very, very small. So the thing that the shamans down there will say is that the plants told us to do this. Okay. It's a whole mind-blowing thing if you think about it. It is, um, but I'm also familiar with similar ideas from other cultures, the old Shinto ideas in Japan, where everything has a kami spirit, even a rock. All facets of nature alive and connected in some way. Uh, we could go back to the Indian or the Buddhist traditions of meditation where they are making the claim that in these altered states of meditation, they're actually being taught. Not always clear what is teaching them, but they are referring to it as if it's a conscious. So as I listen to you say these things, I'm thinking along those lines. So when did you first come in contact with ayahuasca? Um, did you do it on your own or did you go find uh, a shaman of some sort? Basically, my, my introduction was strange. A friend of mine many years ago had gone to the jungle and came back with some ayahuasca and he had a little bit of training and how to use it. And he'd actually been doing psychedelic psychotherapy with other substances for some years. And he called me up and said, you know, you have to try this. And me being me, I said, okay, let's do it. When? And so a few days later, I had that cup in my hand. Is it true that every time you take ayahuasca that you'll throw up? It's not true. Well, for some people, it's true. Other people will throw up occasionally. I personally have only thrown up a few times since I've been drinking it. Do we know what's causing that? It's theoretically the effect of the brew on the serotonin receptors in the, in the gut. But I think there's more going on there because a lot more happens when you throw up than just throwing up. Well, here, here's, here's the thing I wanted to start to get down to. I see all these comments and people come in, and of course, I lived through the 60s and 70s, and even as a young adult in the 80s, the drug culture was strong in Southern California where I was. People are coming in saying, oh, you've got to take mushrooms or LSD to expand your consciousness, and I don't agree with it. I've seen too many lives ruined, and being a logically-minded person, um, I've done some of these things. And one thing I can say, like with mushrooms, nobody seems to know the dosage. They just keep munching until they're you know, completely obliterated. Or if you think about blotter LSD, first of all, you don't know what chemist made it, what's in that chemical, or how many drops went on the blotter. All these problems that I see uh, now that I can correlate backwards and see people that were actually damaged. So... When we're talking about ayahuasca, there is an actual tradition of supposed masters of using ayahuasca, and I noticed you referred to it as a medicine, but as far as I understand it, as well as being a medicine, it helps you on a spiritual path. So there's more of a controlled environment and a mindset that is trained that goes along with it so you know how or what to experience, or do you see where I'm going here? Yes, yeah. Oh, you know, mushrooms had their own tradition, too. And as did peyote, as did iboga, as did any of the teacher plants. The Even tobacco, when, <laughs> when the northern Eurocentric mind gets a hold of these things, they go crazy with it. We go crazy with it. And so instead of uh, something you put in a pipe and smoke occasionally during ritual, it turns into a... Uh, 20 cigarettes in a pack once or twice a day thing. So ayahuasca does come from a very beautiful tradition. And it's the tradition of people who have been studying this medicine for many, many, many generations and have learned how to create the proper set and setting for it. So it's not just done, it shouldn't be, in my opinion, shouldn't be done just to have a trip but should be done in a ritual setting run by somebody who's very familiar and mastered the medicine as much as they could and knows how to sing the proper songs at the proper time or play the proper musical instruments at the proper time 
in order to create a space where the participants can be free and safe to go as deep as they want to go and be led by the music, be led by the songs through the places that could get, you know, honestly quite terrifying and sometimes painfully beautiful to get to the other side and affect the healing process of the medicine because it is a medicine during the course of the ceremony to allow the medicine to heal. So the person who's leading it is not, in my mind, the leader. They're in partnership with the plant spirits and have learned how to not only hear the songs of the plants, but also to communicate those songs to the people who are sitting in the ceremony. So if a person sets out to truly seek a spiritual path and use ayahuasca in that way, and they go and they meet a legitimate shaman, is there some period of training that occurs before they ever ingest the ayahuasca? And also, I would ask, um, is that person who's leading the way, he must be very concerned with dosage, among other things. Good question. There's generally no real training in preparation. There is a preparation that they call dieta that helps people get ready for the medicine. It's a certain eliminating certain foods and eliminating certain practices in life and basically doing what you can do to simplify your body, your mind, and your spirit so that when you receive the medicine, you'll be receiving the medicine with as little in the way as possible. And uh, it's quite a detailed science as far as how that works. And the dose... You know, the thing about plant medicines is it's kind of hard to dose them because you never really know exactly what the potency is of any particular batch. So there's a little bit of a randomness going on there. And that said, there's an intuitive aspect to giving the medicine to somebody. There'll be times when I'll watch the pouring happen And one person gets a quarter of a cup, which is about probably five to 10 milliliters. Another person might get a full cup, which is around 20 milliliters. Another person might need more. And generally, when when you work with somebody more than a few times, you start to know exactly what amount that they need. I'm all about human intuition. From my point of view, the way we measure things, how in the kind of Eurocentric mindset in the West, Everything of nature has to be forced into a measurement. This has always been my problem with metrics, so cold and surgical. Um, We still have furlongs and these other things that involve an element of human intuition. But to get back to the point, when a human being ingests ayahuasca, how long on average do you suppose they'll be under the influence? Generally, four to six hours. There's a curve to it. There's the beginning, of course, the waiting period for the medicine to take effect. That's anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour, usually averaging out at around 20 to 30 minutes. And at that point, generally, the person leading the ceremony will start to sing. Uh, It goes on. uh, The initial phase of it is for most people. And, and, you know, like with ayahuasca, there's no way to say this is how it's going to be. It's it's uh, there's a randomness there and how it works. But for most people, there's a kind of an incredible fractal light show right in the beginning, geometric shapes, sacred, most people describe it as sacred geometry, and kind of being drawn into the world of ayahuasca. And then at some point, usually about an hour in, things start to shift, and it becomes more about healing. And during this phase, there'll be the nausea, the vomiting, uh, sometimes diarrhea, uh, for for most people or for some people, and the state becomes more emotional. Uh, stuff comes up out of the past that's not healed. Memories can come up, traumas can come up, fears can come up, regrets, remorse. All of those things can really come into the field, and this is a place where the ceremony is very delicate because. Singing the whole, you know, room full of 10, 20 people through that takes a lot of skill and power, personal power also. So that phase goes on for maybe an hour or so. And then it hits kind of a cruising level. 
for another few hours, two to three hours. Generally, generally four hours is the minimum. Six hours is usually the maximum unless it's really strong medicine. So the shaman or the guide, he's audibly leading or guiding people audibly with a song? Audibly, yes. Very audible. And the songs vary from different cultures, culture to culture. And kind of in the North, we're developing our own culture around it now. But it can be uh, songs that, when you listen to them, they guide you through the territory and actually can create visionary states. There's a real large amount of, ah, what's the word, when you see sound I've lost the word right now. Sorry. I didn't know there was a word for it, but I, I know what you're talking about. I did LSD a couple of times when I was young and I could hear the Synest- color blue. Synesthesia, it's called synesthesia. Mm. Yeah. When you can start to, the shaman will be singing and you'll start to see what he's singing and what he's singing will take you through various kind of call it journeys into yourself. What's interesting also is that it's different for each person sitting in the room. So in a big way, the medicine meets each person exactly according to what they need. And, uh, you know, when the fear comes up, it's dicey. It can be really dicey because if people succumb to the fear or surrender to the fear, then it's going to be a much more difficult experience for them. If they trust the medicine, trust the shaman, trust the environment, trust the people they're with, then it's a much easier experience. Never easy, but easier. What do the Native peoples think of, especially Americans, but I guess I should say Westerners, wanting to do these ceremonies and all that? I call them Northerners because the only thing west of Peru is Australia and New Zealand. So I call us... (laughs) Fair enough. I call us Northerners. (laughs) The Westerner thing came out, of course, the journey to the East that was happening back in the... 60s and 70s, and even is still happening now. What do they think? Most of them, I believe, are flattered by it because in many of their cultures, the young people in the villages wanted to go to Lima to get educated so they could have a normal northern style, western style life and, you know, have their televisions and their computers and money and stuff like that. Kids, so don't do it. Stay away from TV. No, go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. No kidding. No kidding. Uh, I agree with you. But they wanted to, you know, there was a big exodus out of the villages. And with the coming of the northerners to Peru, it gave the medicine work a lot of respect. Like the very first time I went to the South, I was in Ecuador. And a young boy, probably about 12 years old, came up to a small group of us that were walking through a village there and said, what are you guys doing here? And we said, oh, we're here to learn about ayahuasca. And he looked at us and said, why? That's for old people. Uh How interesting. Yeah. I think what you're referring to is like a generation gap idea, right? Yeah, there was a definite generation gap where doing the traditional medicine work of the jungle the younger people were starting to disrespect it. Now, when the Northerners come down there and start going to the shamans and respecting the shamans and learning the ways, and also, you know, coincidentally bringing money into their culture, a lot of the young people now want to hang out and learn about this. It sounds like almost, you know, if I was going to equate it, there's no MTV in ayahuasca, this lure of the, you know, the glit of the city that Hollywood puts out. It's so ironic because you and I have lived this our whole lives. And I look at those cultures that are closer to nature and I envy them. Truly, I envy them. But as you were speaking about the shaman singing people through, it began to occur to me, it's a little like figuring out a recipe of two given plants in a jungle of Lord knows how many plants. Almost impossible without guidance, which I think is demonstrable. But there's a song there. And that song is doing a thing. And clearly that song was developed. So that shaman has to have been initiated to have that song in the first place. Is this about bloodline? Is this that dad was a shaman and and my family bloodline is better at being shamans? Or is it more about this person has the predilection to be good at this, so we've trained him to be a shaman? How does all that work? Good question. There's some 
some handing down from teacher to student. But where it really happens is what are called plant dietas. And a plant dieta is an amazing technology for understanding different medicinal plants. Whereas in our culture, you know, people will go to the jungle, take plant sample, take it back to a laboratory, crack it open, find out what molecules are in it, then test the molecules for bioeffectiveness, et cetera. In the jungle, what they'll do, because they don't have laboratories there, they don't have that kind of mindset there. What a person will do is what's called a dieta, where you take a set amount of time period, anywhere from two weeks up to some people do it for years, and you go off into the jungle alone. Generally, now you're in a hut. In the past, you could just be living in a tree, but you go off to the jungle alone. And when you're in the jungle alone, you have an extremely restricted diet, extremely restricted Um, nothing with any flavor, nothing with any kind of biological activity. Even things like broccoli could be considered too biologically active. And so often it's now it's rice or yucca are the two main ones or or green platanos, green, green cooking bananas that are grilled or boiled. And maybe once in a while, some fish, a certain very specific species of fish called boca chica, maybe sometimes some chicken. And you're having this as your only sustenance. Well, on a daily or every other day or every third or fourth day basis, you're drinking a cup of one of the plants in the jungle, one of the plants that have been shown to be teacher plants. And Every night or every other night, you're also drinking ayahuasca, either alone or in a group. And you're not talking to people. You're not touching anybody. Technically, you're not using any kind of uh, soaps or toothpastes or shampoos. And your life becomes very, 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 very simple as you're sitting in this hut all day, not allowed to read, not allowed to listen to music. You can sing and you can play music. And you can sit. This is all you do for weeks or months or even years. And while you're doing this, because you're only taking in this one plant with its own chemical communications to your body, to your mind, to your spirit, the plant will start to teach you. And at some point, the plant will teach you its song. And once the plant teaches you its song, The person who has done this has that song, the vibration of that song coming from the plant. It's a vibratory thing with words or without words. But the vibratory nature of that song is that when you sing it to somebody else, you have the medicine of that song to transmit into the person you're singing to. So that's one way of getting songs. Obviously, this can take a long time period. Other people get songs just during ceremony spontaneously. I've been sitting in ceremony, and the need for a song was there that I didn't have. And almost as though it's magic, an entire song comes, and I start singing that song, like right out of no place. And it's a complete song with a beginning, a middle, and end. It has words. It has power. It has an effect on the person I'm singing it to or the room that I'm singing it to. And it's magic. It's kind of a magic that's going on there. Wow. Just wow. You know, when I'm considering, well, yeah, you know, I, I remember the first time I came in contact was with like Carlos Castaneda. Um, and I was young enough to, to think, oh, wow. And I remember going on from there, constantly wanting to get back to more indigenous sources. But as I'm listening to what you're saying, you could almost, if we consider that alchemy was legitimate science based in nature, Maybe it's not exactly what you're describing, but basically to my ears, what I'm hearing you describe is what I would call a spiritual and mind science based in nature and refusing to exceed the perimeters or permission of nature. Does that seem about right? That sounds that sounds like an interesting way to, to put it. Yeah. I never thought about it that way, but well, yes. Yeah, see, we're incumbent here. We're we're speaking to a Western world, and we have to try to figure out a way to bridge uh, a legitimate way to think about these ideas. Um, because let's face it, in the West, most of our ideas are not even our own. We got that from Jim Carrey or Lord knows. 
So that that's part of the problem. But do you feel like shamanism is hereditary to any degree? Are there certain bloodlines that have always been shaman? Or is it more about someone has the predilection to be good at this? It's It can be both, either one. Certainly some people become shamans who have no bloodline for it at all. And then there's others whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents going back forever were doing that kind of work. You know, if you read traditions from some of the oldest meditative texts we can get, where I consider those to be, again, spiritual and mind sciences, more so than what I would call a religion based on how we think about that word in the West. And a recurring theme across cultures that were supposed to have had no contact was that at a certain level of meditation, which maybe you could equate with using ayahuasca, you're not in your normal daily grind you know, mindset, you're in this other mindset now. And in meditation, there was this idea that as you progressed, you could get a teacher. And it's not always clear what they're referring to, but clearly it's some sort of consciousness. And that you've got to prove that you're worthy of the teaching is one of the recurring ideas. Another one is, is that you're going to have to ask permission. Can I please be taught? Is there any sense of that in the ayahuasca spiritual path? Huh. There is and there isn't. I think, I think for, it depends, it depends on the person who's teaching and their style really. And there's each culture has its own style and there's hundreds of different cultures down there. The one that's the most popular now is the Shipibo culture. And in the Shipibo culture, you definitely find the teacher or the teacher definitely finds you or you find the teacher and the teacher says they were waiting for you, which is a whole nother game. I don't want to <laughs> think too much about, <laughs> um, but you know, you find the teacher and the teacher tells you what plants to diet and how long you're going to diet and teaches you the language and the songs. And it's a long kind of excruciating process that I have a great deal of respect for. Then I think there's there's people also who, for whatever reason, have a natural predilection to doing the work and may have learned in a different way, more on their own, more just exploring the territory on their own, perhaps in the beginning with the, with the aid of masters, but not having that intense, you know, guru-disciple relationship going on. So two times in my life, I've spent my entire adult life looking at spiritual paths of others, trying to meet people who were recognized as being far along on the path. Two times in my life, I've met people high up, supposedly high up meditators that have been at it their entire life. You can see it in their eye. There's, there's a glow, there's a glint, there's a, a knowing, there's an adultness. I don't, I could use a million adjectives to try to describe there's a difference when you look that person in the eye you almost feel like they know what you're thinking about is there any sense of that from the shaman who uh have taken this seriously and been at it their whole lives when i met the first shaman that i worked with i looked in his eyes and there was a recognition there you know it was like oh okay i'm familiar with you i don't know who you are i've never met you i don't even know what your language i can't speak with you but there was a familiarity there. You know, years ago, and this is probably as far as most you know, people in the United States have ever experienced, there was a show on television about two English guys who went out to some supposed uncontacted tribe in a jungle. Uh, one guy was really big. I remember his name was Ollie, and they made fun of him, and the tribesmen made fun of him because he was big and ungainly kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. Then there was the smaller, very fit, serious guy. And in that program, they both took ayahuasca. The tall guy that everyone made fun of actually ended up supposedly cracking some of the secrets. Like the, the locals were always wanting to understand these symbols on a rock. And apparently the big goofy guy didn't lose his mind during the ayahuasca. But the serious leader, you know, staunch guy, lost his marbles, <laughs> ran off naked into the jungle, almost drowned, all these things. But I, I remember a few things from that. Of course, it's television, so you've got to take that with more than a pinch of salt, maybe a five-pound bag of salt. But 
one of the things was is apparently when they were making the ayahuasca, it smelled horrendous. And then when they were drinking it, uh, it tasted about the same. Is that an accurate portrayal? <laughs> um, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what are we talking? Weak old dirty socks or worse? <laughs> uh, you want to you wanna make a tea out of the weak old dirty socks to take the taste away. Um, <laughs> That's no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding a little bit. It, it depends on how it's made. The standard description for jungle medicine is somebody scoops up the jungle floor and cooks it for three days, and then you try to drink it. I've had anywhere from, hmm, this is kind of tasty, kind of chocolatey and sweet and nice, to, oh my God, how am I going to get this past my tongue, you know? <laughs> so it's a, a lot of it is cooking style as well, and time of the year when the plants are picked, a lot of things are involved in that. But is it generally being made from the same stuff? Yeah, from the same two plants, and there's well, in in the ayahuasca is the vine. It's kind of confusing here because the vine is called ayahuasca, and the leaf is called chakruna or chakrapanga for different species, or jurema or other things can be can be used for the admixture plant. But in the ayahuasca vine, and all the drink is also called ayahuasca, but in the ayahuasca vine, there's many different uh, varieties of it, which are pretty hard for anybody who's not of the jungle to recognize the differences. There's black, there's red, there's yellow, there's white, there's cielo or sky ayahuasca, there's boa ayahuasca, probably a few more in there. And each one of those vines will have a different effect and a different, different quality to the ceremony. It's a pretty complex science, really. Sorry, guys. I'm I'm actually trying to look up real quick so I can see a picture of the leaf. Uh, I think it's interesting that there's a distinction made between the leaf and the vine. So, is the leaf, a, you know, like that? Is it a spear shape, kind of with lobes, almost like a heart? Is that what it is? Yeah. Oh no. Oh, I I see. Oh, it's it's kind of oblate. It's kind of yeah, like an oval with a tip. It looks a lot like a coffee leaf because it's in the coffee family. Well, wow, what I will, oh, it is in the coffee. So I was going to say, we'd have a problem with ayahuasca in the West if it tasted like mocha chocolate. <laughs> um, but what I was going to point out is it's very interesting because, you know, when you do a Google search for us who are so sucked in to electronic nonsense in the world we live in, but the first images that come up, you actually get a sense that this plant is different. Much of it is spiraling in its growth mm. pattern. Um, is that typical when you see the vine? Does it always have this spirally look to it? Almost always. I mean, it almost looks like a braided rope, but not braided, you know, single twist rope. And I'm looking at versions here. It's very unique looking. But why is there a distinction between the vine, which I'm assuming the juice of the vine or the bark or both is what makes the medicinal ayahuasca, the spiritual ayahuasca? Why is there a difference identified between the leaf and the vine well they're two different very different plants it's kind of a union some people call it a marriage between these two plants the vine itself huasca the word huasca means vine or rope hmm. and so it does look like a rope and it climbs up the trees and um the distinction gosh ham and cheese i don't know mustard and tomatoes they're two different things, but they go well together. Yeah, but you're kind of blowing my mind here because I've been in plants my whole life. And when I think of a basil, I don't say this is the leaf, this is the stem. If I was going to go a little further away from an annual type of plant where it was perennial and it had a vitrified barky, um, you know, exterior on the, on the stem, on the stalk, I still have never been a position where I'm saying this leaf is somehow different from the stock that it's growing from. Oh, and, wait a second. Wait a second. They're two different plants. Well, I heard you. I was, that's where I was going. I mean, you keep referring. So, so how's, so wait a minute. Is it possible to have an ayahuasca vine with no leaves on it? No, no, the, the leaves don't come from the ayahuasca vine. That's what I'm getting at. So if the ayahuasca, have you ever seen an ayahuasca in nature with no leaves associated with it? No, they always have leaves. They have to, you know, photosynthesis from something. But those photosynthesizing leaves are not the ayahuasca vine itself? 
No, the vine is the woody, hard part that grows up the trees that has leaves on it uh, and branches and stuff. But when they make the ayahuasca, they'll take the leaves, generally take the leaves off the vine, pound the vine up and put it in the pot with the other leaf, uh, the chakruna or the uh, chakrapanga, they call it, or chalipanga, which is a different species. All so right. it's I two kind different of, plants mixed together. Okay, I kind of feel like we're losing our communication thread here. I get that when they're making it, a leaf from a separate species, for lack of better terms, gets added in with the aya, ayahuasca bark or vine or you know just that ropey looking thing. But does the ropey looking thing that we're calling ayahuasca on its own have leaves every time? Yes. Are those leaves growing from the ayahuasca stem or the, the vine itself? Yes. Are they a different species than the vine itself? No. Okay. I kind of lost the thread here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure, because I'd never heard of such a thing. Now, if we were going to consider, one of the things I got into was, do you, do you recall there's this little succulent? that grows in Africa somewhere that they realized the Bushmen would, would eat this little cactusy looking thing. I can't recall the name of it right now, but they wouldn't need to eat or drink for a day. And that was how they were going through the things. And so the Western world came in and they said, Oh, we're going to make diet supplements out of this. I forget whatever happened to it. But the reason I'm asking this is there a relationship in your mind? And maybe you don't know, um, between things like the sensation you would get from taking peyote and the sensation you would get from taking ayahuasca. And by the way, there's there's other cactus like San Pedro, I believe is one. There's a number of plants that are, that are referred to as teaching plants. Or is it mutually exclusive to the species you're dealing with? Well, the, the effect of San Pedro or peyote is almost the exact opposite of that of ayahuasca. Now that's interesting. What what can you expound on that? What what do you mean by exactly sure. opposite? Well, chemi chemically, the ayahuasca, the effect of ayahuasca, that is the psychoactive part is the tryptamines, the NNDMT that's found in the chakruna leaf, and the tryptamines. Well, the cactus, the San Pedro and peyote, are a phenylethylamine base. And so, whereas the cactus is stimulating, the ayahuasca is more relaxing or sedating. Mm. That the different—it's not really a sedative, by the way. It's—that's the wrong term. Um, gosh, it's such a hard thing to put into words. Um, but the cactuses tend to be more solar, more yang in effect, more energetic. Energetic and yeah, stimulating. Uh, yeah, and the the ayahuasca tends to be more introspective and internal. Do you think one is more visual than the under? You know, like when you're oh, under yeah. the influence, yeah. is the ayahuasca much more visual? Much more visual. So I'm going to guess, Richard, that you're familiar, at least familiar with Carlos Castaneda, because I think during the hippie movement, that's where a lot of people started to even realize there was this other world out there no one ever heard of, and. And, you know, when I was young, I was interested in that. When I got a little older, I wanted to go to Soros. I didn't want to hear from some guy from US, you know, UCLA or wherever he was from. Um, but one of the things, if you remember in that storyline, to try to determine uh, the spiritual usage is somehow distinct from just taking it to get high. When they went out to find their peyote, I forget the whole term for it. There was a preparation involved, but you could be standing right next to a peyote plant and you couldn't pick the peyote from that plant. You had to start walking in a certain direction, and until your path was blocked by a peyote cactus, um, you could not choose it, almost like you're putting in the will of God idea here, or I don't know how to describe it any better than that. Are you familiar with these ideas from Carlos Castaneda at all? Uh, vague memories. I read those books a long time ago. Right. It's not at the same level as what we're talking about. But the point I'm trying to make was even back then, they were trying to distinguish the idea between just getting high and taking a trip and actually trying to spiritually advance. So since you've been doing this 30 some odd years, do you feel that your use of ayahuasca and your training has spiritually advanced you? Oh, yes. 
Can you describe what that means to you at all? Well, there's a couple of ways that I think ayahuasca works as a spiritual tool, as a spiritual guide, as a spiritual opener. One is that a big part of ayahuasca work is what's called the limpia or the cleansing. And that's when that which you are not gets removed from you or you get a chance to give it up to let go of it. This can be, you know, physical toxins that get in, taken out in the purge. It can be emotional toxins that come out with surrender or with crying or whatever. It's getting rid of everything or as much as possible of that which you are not. And there's a whole lot of us that is that which we are not. You know, all of the images and ideas that we've picked up in this lifetime and maybe previous lifetimes, who knows? all the toxins that we've ingested, all of the pain and suffering and traumas, all of that stuff stands between us and our soul, our spirit. So a big part of ayahuasca work is getting rid of that. Drugs that have been taken, medicines that have been taken, bad food, toxic food, chemical food, all of these things can come out during a ceremony or during a course of many ceremonies. Then there's the opening, they call it the opening of the way or the opening of the path that happens during ceremony where you are given the opportunity to travel within the spirit world. And that can take on many forms too. That can take on what I call the astral world visions, which is the spirits and the monsters and the gods and goddesses and all of that that people see and and that can cross cultures quite easily people can see buddha or people can see krishna or kali or shiva during their experiences or nature or, or jesus i would imagine or jesus of course that's quite big in peru where catholicism is quite prevalent even in the jungle is there a big mixing of old and newer faiths then as a result of that yeah, I think so. I mean, the the Catholicism has been there for hundreds of years, and the missionaries of uh, different different sects, the Mormons and the Seventh Day Adventists and the Evangelicals, are definitely working hard there to save the souls of the poor jungle natives. Of course, you know, of course, and bring them to the light of the Bible and empty the ayahuasca cup. I'm guessing. Yeah, ayahuasca's ayahuasca's the devil, you know, down there. Well, we we can't have any of that free thinking going on. No, no. I think someone put a, a tag. They know this because somebody put a tag on that plant in the jungle that said God did not make this plant. That's how they know that, just so everyone's clear here. But right, let, let me ask you, if you thought way back to your initial experiences with ayahuasca, from what I understand from what I've done in research with zero direct experience, particularly with ayahuasca, but having done uh, mushrooms and having done LSD, which I regret more than once, mm -hmm. were you ever afraid or, you know, I guess people might describe it as a bad trip. It's so intense. Did you ever have that experience with ayahuasca? I think everybody who does the medicine at some point has that, oh, shot <laughs> experience. Yeah. Yeah, definitely it's there. Let me, let me, you ask for a story. Let me tell you about my first experience, if that's okay. Sure. So I drank the medicine and it was very powerful. You could, I could tell by the taste of it that it was going to be an interesting night. And my first time I'm sitting in this room with my eyes closed, there's gentle music playing. This person was not a trained singer, so he just used recorded music at that point. And I'm sitting there, da, 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 no, this is nice. I'm seeing some things. Wow, this is very pretty. I like this. And then in that second phase, I was suddenly three-dimensionally full-on immersive experience of being in a Nazi concentration camp. This was not pleasant, uh, to say the least. And I'm standing in this Nazi concentration camp. And no matter what I tried to do, I couldn't get out of it. I wasn't panicking. I wasn't, you know, I knew what was going on. I knew I was on medicine. It was not enough that I lost that reality, thank God. But I was in this, in this 
camp. And finally, I kind of put out, uh, what am I supposed to do here? What am I supposed to, what am I here for? What am I doing here? And as though there was a voice coming from outside of me, these words, trust and forgive, came into my consciousness, trust and forgive. And I had a whole conversation with whatever it was that was telling me this, trust and forgive. You know, how do I do that? Trust and forgive. What what am I supposed to do? Trust and forgive. How do I get out of here? Trust and forgive. Over and over and over again until I finally understood what trust and forgive meant. And as soon as I understood that forgiveness had nothing to do with making something right or making it okay, or even saying the words, I forgive, it had everything to do with allowing that part of me that was holding on to those images from the past to fade into the past, to lose the connection to it, to let it go, to let it go, to let it go. And as soon as I did that, then the scene changed to another horrific scene. And, you know, what am I doing here? Trust and forgive, trust and forgive. And it went on for a few hours of this tour of human beings and humanity to each other. And in each place, going back and back and back and back in history, it was trust and forgive, let go, let it, let it go. So that when the experience was over, I was so light. Because, you know, if if you look at this, this was not coming from the outside. This was coming from inside of me. And these were all things that at some part of my subconscious or unconscious mind, we might call it the Jungian collective unconsciousness, but at some place I was holding all of these images deep within inside of myself and bringing them into consciousness and allowing that forgiveness to happen allowed me to be free of those events and images of the past that I either had experienced in previous lifetimes, I don't know about that, or that I had had in my unconscious mind that were still weighing me down as though they were real, because the mind does not know reality from vision, from memory. And that was an incredibly healing experience. That was when that was when I, you know, when I came out of it, I went, oh, this is my life. This is the work I want to do. This is incredible what's happening here. That's so interesting because if we logically look at what you just expressed from firsthand encounter, there's really two options here. We have past lives and you're remembering something or what has happened to you in this life affected you at such a level that that's how it was processed. And this is the point that Jason and I so so often try to make with the fear porn that comes out of your news or these violent, violent movies or very sad, heart-wrenching movies. These are all images that your mind is processing as if you were in the world experiencing these things on some level. I'll tell you what, Richard, we're going to take a a five-minute break and then we're going to queue up and do hour two uh, where we have no concerns for free speech. We can address anything we want to. That will be coming off the private server of crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777 radio.com. Anything you want to get in before I wrap up, Jason? Richard, is there any information you want to put out there for people to find you? If people want to find me, they could could leave notes in in the comments. Okay. Um, Will you be showing up in the comments section, Richard? For a week or so, yeah. Okay. There it is, man. Uh, That brings the first hour of episode 199 to a close. Join us over at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W, 777radio.com. That is not crow777.com. That is a pirated website. Crow777radio.com is the only real deal. There it is, man. Join us on the other side to make a pun. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing. Come. 